Welcome to Talking and Shul, a roundtable podcast. I'm your host, Tamar Fox, and I've got Zahava Stadler joining us from Toronto. Hi, Zahava. Hey, Tamar. Uh, Mimi Lewis is on parental leave this month. Mazal tov to Mimi. This month, we are talking with Marcy Greenfield-Simons about what it's like to be an interfaith chaplain in these very intense COVID times. And for our second segment, we're talking about a series of video documentaries from the Times of Israel about three somewhat neglected populations within Jerusalem secular Jews, Christians, and Arabs who might want to become Israeli citizens. So we are so excited for our first segment to have with us Marcy Greenfield-Simons. Marcy was formerly a Jewish educator and then director of PJ Library before she pursued a third career as an interfaith hospital chaplain. She currently serves in that role at Berkshire Medical Center in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. Welcome, Marcy. Thank you so much, Tamar. We are so happy to have you here. I would love to hear just from you a little bit about like, how how are you doing and how how has it been for the past couple of years? That is a pretty broad question. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I am happy to report that personally, I am doing well. Um, It has been for sure, like it has been for everyone, whether you're a chaplain or not, an incredibly intense past couple of years. Like everyone, if I think back to March of 2020, we were hit like a deer in headlights. There was so much that was scary and so little that we knew and so much information that was transmitted to us that was based not yet on science. And so... As someone who worked in a healthcare setting, you know, no one really knew how COVID was being transmitted. And we all prepared for the absolute worst case scenario. Remember those days when we were washing our newspapers and our mail and our groceries? As a result, in the hospital, in hospitals everywhere, I believe, they were trying to keep the number of staff down to a minimum. And so I am part of a staff of three part-time chaplains. One is a Catholic priest. One is an interfaith minister and me who is not ordained, but is um, a trained chaplain. And only the priest was going into the hospital. The other chaplain and myself at the beginning were working from home. And we did that for about six or seven weeks. And like chaplains everywhere, we had to turn on a dime and reinvent our role because we could not minister to our patients in the way that we had always been doing and knew how to do. That seems like a lifetime ago now, and so much has happened. I think back to, you know, chaplaining over the phone, or as we called it, telechaplaining, Um, I came back to the hospital, I think the end of May. And since that time, I have been there in person through surges and through better times. Maybe one of the largest changes in the work that I do has been the increase in serving staff. You know, we've always said that chaplains are in a hospital to serve our patients, their families, and staff. 
but in many ways, the staff was not a third of what we did, but, you know, a small percentage. And now it's a lot of the work that we do. It's a long-winded answer to your question, but I have been... No, you anticipated exactly what I was going to ask next, which was how your chaplaincy has extended to your colleagues in the hospital and what that's been like for you and for them. So early on, while I was still working from home, I was invited to join a committee. I was one of five people. I think two were from the psychology and psychiatry departments, One was the woman who is the director of wellness for the hospital, and one gentleman, a psychologist from our EAP, which is Employee Assistance Program, and I was the fifth member of this committee, and it was, what can we do to support the staff? And we brainstormed, we came up with several ideas, and from the perspective of the spiritual care department, which is the name of the chaplaincy department. I started to make video recordings to send to staff. I was really missing staff, some people that I just worked with on a very regular basis, both on medical floors. I had gone weekly to facilitate a spirituality group in the detox floor, so I knew that staff very well, the same in one of the psych units. And so I would send them video messages, and then we started to send emails. Um, I collaborated with my um, chaplaincy teacher supervisor and another chaplain. Um, we were sharing resources, prayers that had been developed in hospitals all around the country in terms of prayers for Um, environmental services people, prayers for doctors, prayers for nurses. And then once we got back in person, we collaborated with the wellness department and really started to make rounds. We would sometimes just walk the halls and check in with people. I have a distinct memory of going up to a nurse who was in the critical care unit. She was engrossed with what was at her computer on wheels and she felt my presence. I didn't want to interrupt while she was thinking. And so she stopped and looked at me and said, hi. And I said, how are you? And she said, I'm okay. And I said, how are you really? And she just burst out crying. People were so grateful to see us. I can't tell you how many times staff has said, just your presence in the halls has a calming effect. One of the many tragedies that took place at our hospital is that a beloved staff member from the Environmental Services Unit contracted covid She was in the critical care unit for a long time. She lived with her sister, who was not an employee of the hospital, but the sister also contracted COVID, and they each died. So one of the things that I was asked to do was to help facilitate a gathering Um, I wouldn't call it a memorial service, but a moment of recognition. Uh, Later, 
I think it was in the spring of 2021 after our second big surge. Remember how terrible it was between December 1920 and February 2021. Uh, the numbers were really just overwhelming and, and the losses and staff had very little time to process and to grieve, to pause. And so in May, which um, happens to be Mental Health Awareness Month, we put together a whole um, range of efforts to reach out to staff. And we did this again in conjunction with the wellness team to try to give staff an opportunity to express, to process, to grieve. And one of the things was we have this very sweet courtyard outside the cafeteria and a lovely tree with, it's not a weeping willow tree, but has those kinds of branches that bow over. And people were invited to um, write messages or names of people and hang them from the tree. And I distinctly remember the charge nurse of the floor where that beloved um, environmental services person worked and she stood there and then she left. She just bolted. It was just too much for her. In the fall, this past fall, which was just as Omicron was coming in, it was Thanksgiving and we went around with a gratitude card with tea and chocolates and little prayer cards and those smooth stones that are often referred to as worry stones that people sometimes carry in their pocket, but we called them calming stones in head. And we just went from place to place to place and people were just so grateful. And for some, it's the chocolate. For many, it's the chocolate. Although it's dark chocolate, they prefer milk chocolate. But we are with wellness. We need to do something healthy. Um, but for many people, it was the calming stones. And um, these are some of the ways, you know, that we just try continuing in the present tense to, to respond and hold our colleagues who are on the front lines. You know, I think this is a much more expansive notion of chaplaincy than a lot of people have a concept of. And I think that people, especially who don't have that much direct acquaintance with sort of the life of hospitals, think that hospital chaplains are mostly called in uh, when somebody is on the brink of death or, or has been diagnosed with something terminal and supporting either that patient or their family or both. But this is a much broader notion of what it means to minister uh, to people in the hospital. And I'm wondering if you could just give us a quick step back on what it really means to be a hospital chaplain, even independent of the COVID context, but just what the job description was, well, supposed to be right. <laughs> when you began in the role. Thank you, Zahava. That is actually, I think that's a great question and really important. Um, people absolutely have a misconception that we are there for end of life. And typically people associate chaplaincy with Christianity and often with Catholicism and what's known as last rites or used to be called last rites. And we, what I often say is we can do that. Um, I myself obviously don't do last rites, but I can do end of life prayer and do do that. But 
why do people come to the hospital? People come to the hospital for healing of all kinds. They may have been painting their house, fallen off a ladder and broken nine ribs and are in excruciating pain, or they have um, heart disease or dialysis needs or addiction problems, whatever. Everybody is there for healing. And they're all different components that go with healing. And if people are in emotional or spiritual distress when they've lost touch with what gives their life meaning and hope, that impedes with their healing. And a chaplain is there, and and we like to, as a matter of fact, we made a conscious effort to change the name of our department from pastoral care to spiritual care because spirituality is so much more encompassing. And the definition of spirituality that I particularly like to work with is one created by a medical doctor, Dr. Christina Puchalski, who describes spirituality as that aspect of humanity where we seek purpose and meaning. And we do that through connections within ourselves, to another, to a group, through nature or something sacred. I, I can remember a time where I visited a patient who was in the hospital, I think with pneumonia. And he was young and healthy and was clearly going to recover, but he was in spiritual distress. And as we visited, what eventually came out of the conversation was that the cough that he had sounded just like the cough that his mother had before she was diagnosed with lung cancer. So these are the kinds of things I, I talk to many patients who are incredibly anxious because they're out of work and they won't have income and can they make their rent or who's going to be taking care of their pet at home. So all sorts of things. And then, of course, there are people who are maybe just getting diagnoses which may become terminal and questions of legacy come up, questions about reconciliation. We hear a lot from parents who or kids who have been estranged from family members for a very long time, and they've been living with it. And now all of a sudden, it's not a comfortable thing to live with. So chaplaincy involves so much more than prayer. It can be prayer for a lot of people. They, they don't think that they're religious in any way. They don't believe in a higher power. And then when they're very sick, everything changes. So um, does that explain a little bit more about chaplaincy, Sahava? Yeah, I appreciate that. And I, I appreciate that very all-embracing approach. And one thing that's interesting to me is that you referred to this as a third career and your prior uh, professional phases have been very distinctly Jewish. Um, and you come to this as a person who has been, you know, a, a Jewish communal professional mm -hmm. before and a Jewish educator. Mm -hmm. And now you're serving in an interfaith capacity um, and you can be providing spiritual care to somebody who is Jewish, is not Jewish, is very definitively something other than right. Jewish. Um, and so it would be great, I think, to hear about how you experience that as a Jewish but interfaith chaplain. You know, I have to say, when I started my chaplaincy training, I was in the program, which is called Clinical Pastoral Education, and I was one of six students 
in this cohort and I was the only Jewish person. And in so many ways, that intensive experience was one of the most spiritual times of my life, just because of all of the work that we did, not just with the patients, but through the didactic part of our training, so much thinking about theology. And um, I loved it. I loved it in many ways. I think other Jewish professionals might agree with me when you're a Jewish professional, especially when I was a school teacher, you know, you go through Hadlakat Neirot and Kiddush and you do this in school on Friday. And by the time you get to it on Friday night at home, it's like been there, done that. And it's hard to really, you know, access what you want to be feeling in your heart. Um, so this was this was very different. In the work that I do, I I bring in a lot of Judaism and I do work with Jewish patients and I will tell you in that period of time while I was working from home, one of the most profound experiences that I had was that there was a Jewish woman who was going to be terminally extubated. She had COVID, she was in the critical care unit. I had known her from many previous hospitalizations and, and visited with her many times. She was not responsive, but she was going to be dying. And I knew that she had young adult children and I was in touch with the case manager and she put me in touch with the adult, young adult children who were also not there in the hospital. And we arranged to have a four-way telephone call while the case manager held the phone outside this woman's hospital room while I, you know, did the V-Dewey. And it was for her and it was for her children to have some closure. So there are always some moments of in intense privilege when I am serving Jewish patients, although it is an intense privilege to serve all of the patients that I serve. It's interesting in my work, I very often don't disclose my faith tradition unless I'm speaking with Jewish patients. And I'll tell you why. <laughs> you know, a very common question when I introduce myself, you know, I'll say, you know, hi, Mr. So-and-so or hi, Ms. So-and-so. I'm Marcy. I'm one of the chaplains at the hospital and they'll say, and what church are you from? And I'll say, well, actually, um, I, I'm part of the hospital staff and the patients here are my congregants. And I kind of leave it like that. And most of the time people accept that. The reason mm. that I typically disclose um, that I am Jewish to my Jewish patients is because if they're anything like me, they never heard of a Jewish chaplain. You know, they didn't know that chaplains could be Jewish. And so I want them to know when I introduce myself that I'm a member of the tribe too, so to speak, and that perhaps that will make them more receptive to my visit rather than thinking that I might be of another faith coming in and trying to sell my wares or, or whatever. So, but I, I have to say, Zahava, I loved being a Jewish professional and I love being an interfaith chaplain. I feel incredibly grateful that I've had the opportunity to do all of that. You've already talked a little bit about the kind of complexities around COVID that, that led to adding more kind of technology into chaplaincy. I guess I don't know that much about it, but I've assumed that up until 
COVID, most of your work was really face to face with people. I'm curious if there's anything about the like technology ad that you kind of think is good and are kind of walking away from. I think a lot of us have had technology and, you know, video chats added to a lot of parts of our lives that we maybe didn't want them to be added to. And we're happy to be rid of them as soon as we can. But there are definitely things that it's like, you know, for example, like having a telehealth visit Mm -hmm. when you're like, I just have a sore throat. I actually don't want to like go wait in an office for 40 minutes to see a doctor has been like a huge net benefit. I'm curious if there's been anything like that within chaplaincy that you feel like has been, has been good. Or if you're just like, this is actually only something that works well, if we can be there in person. In my personal life, I agree with you hundred percent, Tamar. I really appreciate some of the things that, you know, ways we've been able to connect with people. So much of chaplaincy is more than words. So much of chaplaincy is the eye contact and the touch. And losing that was so hard. And even when I came back and I wasn't supposed to touch people, that was so hard. I bet there are still people who would tell me not to touch people, but I just can't do that. I'd much rather wash my hands 150 times a day than not be able to do that because it it is. Chaplaincy is a ministry of presence. And a lot of what we do is just bear witness to our patients for whatever it is that they have to say or share. I was grateful that with the limitations of COVID, I, I couldn't always speak to patients because many times they couldn't speak, but I could speak to their families who were so cut off. It was such a frightening time and they, you know, eventually they got iPads in, but they couldn't necessarily speak to their loved ones if their loved ones were nonverbal at that time. And so a lot of the work that I did um, early on was by phone to family members of people who were critically ill or dying. Thank you so much for sharing so much about your, your work with us and um, especially about what it has been like during these especially intense times. I know that um, you're caring a lot for a lot of people and um, we're so grateful to learn about your perspective and all of the work that you and other um, interfaith chaplains do. Thank you so much. You are so welcome. Thanks. It's been a, a joy to talk about it. Thanks. Thank you so much for sharing with us. Bye-bye. Okay, and now on to our second segment. In this conversation, we're going to be focused on a series that the Times of Israel released in January in English. The series was originally released in Hebrew, was created by Eve Kristal and Natan Odenheimer and co-produced with Khan, which is the Israeli Public Broadcasting Corporation. And it is three... Jerusalem-focused documentaries. They're short-form documentaries. Each is about 10 minutes long, and each one focuses on a different complex population or circumstance within Jerusalem, present-day circumstance. One is about the presence or integration of 
Haredi Jews into a non-Haredi and somewhat secular neighborhood in Jerusalem. One is about the dwindling population of Jerusalem's Christians and their situation. And one is about uh, Makdasin, if I'm getting that pronunciation right, which are Arabs in Jerusalem and especially East Jerusalem that are interested potentially in becoming Israeli citizens. So I thought these were really interesting. Um, I thought there was a lot in each 10 minutes. Definitely worth 30 some minutes of your time and they're available on YouTube. So we'll share links to those in the show notes, but I was glad to dive into these. Tamar, how did you find them? I really like them. I was really pleased. I felt like I learned a lot. I will say that like they felt super Israeli to me in that like, I honestly thought they were too fast. Like sometimes I was like, so much information is happening in one sentence or one like quick animation on the screen. And I was like, wait, I don't totally like, <laughs> give me one more second to read that before you go on to the next thing. I think the instructions on the Times of Israel website actually suggest playing them at 0.75 speed, possibly <laughs> for that reason. Oh man. Okay. Yeah. So anyways, they might be worth more than one watch, but also like they are short. So it's not like a huge time investment. When I sat down to watch them, I thought that they would be like each 40 minutes long. So when they were not, I was like, this is great. But then when I finished them, I was like, they each could have been like at least five minutes longer and I would have felt less stressed out by the end, <laughs> I think. I thought they were great and I, I learned a ton. It was, I think for me, the thing that was like most interesting was like all three of the issues that this series went into are issues that I basically have never thought about before in any serious way. And I'm not going to say that I thought about it in any serious way after watching a 10 minute video, but like it did unpack a lot of the kind of complexities for me in a way that I was really impressed by. The second one, I think, about the Christian population of Jerusalem was the one that I walked into with the fewest priors, right? I had the least prior knowledge about the Christians in Jerusalem than um, the, relative to either thinking about Haredi and secular people in Jerusalem were thinking about uh, Muslims and their citizenship in Jerusalem, even though I think I got a lot of new perspective from both of those. I do think that the one on Christians in Jerusalem was really new to me and it expects that of the viewer, right? That one is the most broad introduction to a topic. There were a few things that jumped out to me about that. One of them is that generally the Israeli government and I guess the Jerusalem municipal government fall short in having any real intentional policy approach to their Christians, which makes sense, right? Everybody's very focused on other populations in the country, but it's something that I'd never really thought about. The fact that just this is a, something of a lacuna in, pol in policy and in any kind of systematic approach. Yeah, it was really funny. And just like they talked, they, they kind of gestured briefly at all of the conflicts between all the different Christian sects that have like turf in within the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and how like that. I, I have read articles about like fist fights that have broken out among those different groups. So I was a little bummed that they didn't go a little bit more into like what's going on there. But one of the th things that I thought was so interesting that like I actually laughed out loud was they interview a couple of um, young Christian men. And one of them is basically like, 
yeah, who am I supposed to date here? Like I've had to date some Jewish girls because like there's no like who and it was just this just like weird like backwards intermarriage thing that I was like, wow, yeah, I guess if you're a Christian living in Jerusalem, like you probably just gotta date Jews because there's not really other options for you. I thought that was like genuinely hilarious. I also like this is like a little bit of a side note, but I have to say that I was in high school when I found out what the fourth quarter of Jeru- of the old city is like, obviously Muslim, Jewish, Christian, but then like Armenian is such a wild card. Like that is not, you would not be like, those four things are not all <laughs> typically on the same level. And so when I found out that the fourth quarter was for Armenians, I was just like, what? And there's a, an Armenian Christian guy who like opens the door and there's like a whole soccer pitch. Basically, <laughs> it's like, Hiding back it was there. just one of those things where it's like, if you are Armenian and you're, pro- first of all, you're probably Christian. And second of all, like, again, like this there's like a whole quarter designated for you, but there's not actually a lot of Armenians. So they end up in this very like weird liminal space of like, we're here, but like almost not. (laughs) And I just thought like, that was fascinating. I don't think the Armenian quarter is literally geographically 25% of Jerusalem. I think it's a much smaller segment. Oh, for sure. It's smaller than that, but it's still like, it's not nothing. And like, it is not, a thing like I've never other than tour guides I've never heard anybody talk about doing anything in the Armenian quarter even though like I know a lot of people who like live or have lived including myself in Jerusalem for what it's worth if you go into the old city through the Jaffa gate through Shariafo you are walking through the Armenian quarter before you get to the Jewish quarter that first little segment is Armenian quarter where you pass the you know uh, the tile shops and things like that right I did a gap year in Israel living in the old city and so that tiny little segment connector segment of the Armenian quarter that leads into the Jewish quarter I walked through many times it, it's interesting actually how all the Americans in my program, found the Christmas trees in the Armenian quarter sort of homey and nostalgic because they were missing (laughs) out on all the Christmas decor. Anyway, I mean, I think there were other really interesting things about the discussion of the Christian population. One was that, and this just hadn't occurred to me, that a sizable portion of the Christian population is Palestinian, that there are Palestinian Christians who may feel caught between their Palestinian national identity and their minority religion status in the Palestinian community. And the other kind of cross-pressuring that I thought was really interesting was the idea that some of the people who are most invested in preserving Jerusalem Christianity are evangelicals abroad and what kind of Zionism they practice and how that feels to Palestinian Christians. And that kind of cross-pressured conflict situation I thought was really interesting. I feel like we might want to have a much longer conversation about like the evangelical Zionism weird stuff because I have a lot of feelings there and I don't want to like <laughs> mire us too deeply into that. I want to go to the secular Israelis episode, which first of all, okay, the funniest thing about that is like a lot of the people that that episode describes as secular, I was like, huh, that's not what I would call those people like outside of Jerusalem those people would be deemed religious. But within Yerushalayim, it's basically like, are you Haredi? No, you must be secular, (laughs) which is like a kind of bizarre paradigm for me. And so 
that was super interesting. But a lot of what that episode really talks about is there aren't very many neighborhoods in Jerusalem that are not overwhelmingly Haredi at this point. And one particular neighborhood, Baca, had a like recent kerfuffle because a Haredi yeshiva opened up, like literally they came in the middle of the night and set up this yeshiva and people were really upset about it. And they interview some guys from the yeshiva. The guy who they interviewed from this yeshiva is such a smarmy jerk. I was like, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Did you take that from, from that as well? I wouldn't say that was my immediate reaction to him. He certainly fancied himself a politician, right? In terms of his manner and sort of external relations. I think it's interesting what people are worried about. People who are not Haredi are worried about when they see an influx of Haredi people into their neighborhood. And it's not entirely the same thing that people would be worried about in the United States if such a thing were happening. And I I always really struggle with this because I, I think that we recognize or we should recognize that sometimes when people are talking about not wanting to see a big influx of Hasidim or uh, a big influx of Haredi population in their American town, that often if you just sub out the name of a race or an immigrant group for whichever Jewish group they're talking about, you'd acknowledge this is a clearly racist thing. And yet sometimes when it's charading, we we have to sort of check ourselves about that because would it change the character of the neighborhood? Yes. Would a big influx of Somali immigrants change the character of your neighborhood? Also, yes. Like you need to think about what and why you're objecting to. In Israel, I think what people what people are particularly concerned about is enforcement of Haredi norms in the public square. That once you get a certain tipping point of population, then there are attempts to enforce kinds of observance of Shabbat. There are attempts to enforce kinds of dress in public and where people can go and how they behave together in the park and on the street. And people are really worried about that. And I think there's sort of a funny parallel to the state of Israel generally and the notion of Jews as the majority and enforcing any notion of Judaism and Jewish culture in the public square transposed down a level to the Haredi presence in a given neighborhood. The difference is really one of political and social power. That That's what sort of distinguishes this from the American context, even though I think some of people's gut level comforts and discomforts may be similar. But I, I think it's worth interrogating. One of the things that really struck me was there were conversations about like, will people who want to drive on Shabbat, will they be unable to get their cars out of the neighborhood because people will like prevent them from doing that or yell at them? And there were also concerns about like, will women in the neighborhood get things shouted at them if they're not dressed in a way that the Haredim deem to be sufficiently modest? And it just like, it was fascinating to me because it's like the opposite of cat calling. <laughs> the whole paradigm is like, those things seem very legitimate to me in terms of things that like you might not want to have suddenly happen in your neighborhood. 
but I also like, I am currently in the middle of a big kerfuffle in my neighborhood because the city wants to make a street, like basically narrow a street. And so it's safer. And there's like a big pushback from mostly older residents of the neighborhood who are basically like, you know, my kids were crossing that street for 40 years and nobody wanted to make it safe. Now you guys want to make it safe. Like it's clear that it's about concerns about gentrification and not really about like the street. Like there's not a good argument for keeping a street that's known to be dangerous, dangerous. It's like a stand in for I'm afraid of change. And like, I'm afraid that this is just going to be a harbinger of more gentrification in my neighborhood, which is, I think, a valid concern. Although I don't think this, I don't happen to be on the side of it in this thing. But as I was like watching the, um, this conversation about the secular Jews, I was like, huh, (laughs) are they like, how does this, I was just like trying to kind of interrogate my current situation versus their situation. And, you know, I do think it's different, but I also think that one of the things that is hardest for us to deal with, and it's like at the base of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is like, just because you were someplace first doesn't mean you get to make all the rules. And it doesn't mean that it's right. Like other people, even if you were there first, still exist. And I mean, I think about this all the time, just like having children, like if one of them is on the couch and then the other one comes on the couch and annoys that one, it's like, okay, that was not a great move on your part, but there's two people on the couch. And that means that there's two possible solutions at least to like making this stop. I don't know. It just like, I I was very interested in that conversation and in how things Ultimately, what it was saying is like all of the neighborhoods in Yerushalayim are going to be Haredi eventually. <laughs> like, there's no secular. One of the things that they talk about is like the demographics, and that like basically the huge majority of children being born in Jerusalem are Haredi children. So like, you wait 20 years, and there's just not going to be a significant secular population. And that was like interesting and a bummer. Yeah, it was, it was interesting. And I appreciated the the range of people they spoke to under the banner of secular, which as you said, doesn't really mean secular in this context, but there was, there was an interesting range of people. And one of them was the Jerusalem municipality and its documents doesn't even want to call me secular. You know what I'm called? General. (laughs) (laughs) She's like, I'm Klalit. And so and, and that's interesting, right? That that policy doesn't know how to reckon with secularism in Jerusalem. And maybe in 15 years, they reasonably won't have to under the circumstances. But speaking of being there first and who gets to make the rules, um, the third video <laughs> about East Jerusalem Arabs and their citizenship status was really interesting because you have this population that technically has the right to seek citizenship in Israel because they live in a a territory that's been annexed by Israel, that the East Jerusalem representative to the Palestinian Authority is is interviewed. And she says, you know, we, we have religious rulings that it is forbidden to seek Israeli citizenship unless you need it for some kind of immediate uh, emergent reason. 
Meanwhile, on the other side of the table, you have questions of how real is that right? How uh, efficiently and effectively are these applications being processed from people who want them? It, are we talking about kind of a something that is, is honored more in the breach than in the doing? And why are people seeking uh, Israeli citizenship? And they talked about rising numbers, you know, that it used to be 20 uh, East Jerusalem Arabs would seek citizenship in a year, and now it's more like 1,500 or 2,000, and why is that changing? And the thing that really I actually appreciated and found to be refreshing and sort of a relief about this is how present tense it is, that so many discussions of Jerusalem specifically and just Jewish-Palestinian conflict in any part of Israel is is about who's right and who's wrong and who was there first and when did X happen and when was that line drawn and should it have been drawn and who has the right to do what as a result of history. And here we're like, no, there are people living now who are trying to make their way through a present tense situation. And some of them have determined that they may not like it. They may not like legitimizing Israeli government. They may not philosophically feel like Israelis in any meaningful sense, but like they want a job. They want to be moving freely in a certain part of the country. They want, they have certain aspirations for themselves and this is the best way to facilitate it. And they're getting accused of being, I think the word used is normalizers of the Israeli mm -hmm. presence. But at the end of the day, they're just trying to make their way in the society where they live and meanwhile, they're coming up against a present tense set of policy choices being made on the Israeli side, a present tense set of cultural stigmas that they're experiencing um, in their home communities. And those things were all really interesting to me to see and explore. Yeah, I found from I really wanted to know. So there's a lot of discussion about applying for citizenship and that people used to do it secretly. And now so many more people are doing it, but the Israeli government has allocated the same amount of resources now as when it was like, you know, 20 or 60 people doing it in a year. And now it's so many more. And I was just like, I really want to know what is entailed in this. Like, I mean, I hope they don't have to spend a lot of time in Misrata Panim or something terrible like that. But like, what, <laughs> what does it mean? I, I have actually last week, I submitted my application for um, Austrian citizenship. And so I have like just done a bunch of paperwork around citizenship and I'm like, okay, I want to okay, hear that story another time. Is. <laughs> yeah. I'm just like super curious what is actually entailed because it's not clear to me from this um, episode, if they all could get it, like, is it actually something that is available to all of them? Or is it like, maybe they'll get it, maybe they won't. To me, that's just like a really important piece of it of like, you know, of course, if they if it can improve their lives, like, it totally makes a lot of sense that people would give it a try. But I'm curious about what the logistics of it are and what kind of impact it has on their day-to-day -day life. I mean, clearly they can get more, there's more options for jobs and travel within the country, but I'm, I'm curious, you know, people would, people in the episode would say like, Oh, you would get it, but you would keep it a secret. It's like, well, but if you have a job <laughs> somewhere, you can't really keep that a secret. So I'm just really interested in like how it plays out. Yeah. I think for each of these actually, 
I was glad to have a 10 minute entry point and also I'd be happy to watch the next 10 minutes. Totally. And I have follow up questions. So I'm I'm curious to see if these get revisited at all. I would definitely welcome that. But on the whole, I, I really recommend this series to anybody who found this discussion at all interesting. Um, there's some cool stuff explored. Okay, I have a quick question for you before we close this segment. There is a woman, I think in the secular episode, she's wearing like a big hat with a big brim. Mm-hmm. And in some of the shots, it seemed like they were like obscuring her eye, like yes. anonymizing her. But in some of them, they weren't. <laughs> I was like, I'm so confused. Is this just like a shadow on her face or is she like trying to remain anonymous? My you, I, you my guess watching this was that she was trying to remain somewhat anonymous. And in the moments where the shadow was less, they added like deliberate video obscuring stuff. Interesting. I don't know if that's true. I don't recall if her name was at any point in a caption. Most people were named at some point. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that she did not have a name credit on screen, but I could be wrong about that. It was kind of goofy, right. though. I, what did she think was going to happen? Did she, was know, she worried was like, about a Haredi militia breaking down her doors because she's secular? <laughs> well, also, I was like, she talked about her family in such a way that I was like, it feels like anyone who knows anyone else in Yerushalayim could probably figure out who you are based on what you said. <laughs> Just knowing how Jews are. I don't know. It was a very bizarre um, situation. So if you watch... And you have a point of view on exactly what was going on there. Please let us know because I am curious. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Well, it is time for us to give our endorsements. Zahava, what have you got? Okay. I have the endorsement I planned and then a second endorsement that occurred to me while we were discussing the Jerusalem shorts. So the endorsement that I planned is a book that I've just finished reading. It's called The Loneliest Americans by Jay Caspian Kang. Kang is a writer, I believe, for the New York Times Magazine. And it's sort of a combination memoir, popular sociology, history kind of book. And it's about Asian American identity. And a big part of what the book is arguing is that such a thing doesn't really exist and doesn't really make sense. But... A lot of the book is about the alienation and weirdness and unmooring effect of being Asian and trying to locate yourself within the white, black, racial binary of the United States, which today has evolved to a degree to be white person of color. Um, And a lot of what he's talking about is how sometimes when people say person of color, they're thinking about Asian Americans and sometimes they're very much not. And that your alliances are situational, the allyship of, of other liberal activists is situational, that your own sense of where you belong in that is situational and largely dependent also on which generation of immigrants you are descended from, which I thought was interesting, which phase of American immigration law allowed for your forebears. He refers to himself repeatedly as a child of heart seller, which means that he, you know, he is the children of immigrants who came over under a particular immigration law, the Heart Seller Act. And that means that his parents were more affluent, more educated than, let's say, an earlier generation of Chinese American laborers and what that means. But the framework and 
the strong sense of alienation that comes from not seeing yourself in the way American discourse defines race and ethnicity and the sort of conditional nature of your place in either side of the white person of color binary is something that as a an Ashkenazi Jewish person really resonated and was very interesting. It's an interesting framework. Apparently, I am not the only Jewish reader to have this reaction, although he almost never mentions Jews at all, except as part of a big collection of white ethnics that uh, have evolved over time, along with the Irish and the Italians. It's a very interesting soul-searching and history-searching and society-searching look at what it means to not quite find yourself in the American racial hierarchy. So totally recommend it. He's also a very funny writer. There's a certain sardonic vibe, um, but The Loneliest Americans by Jay Caspian Kang. It's a pretty new book. I think it came out uh, in late 2021. The other recommendation that uh, came up when we were talking about Jerusalem Christians and specifically Armenian Christians, there is a poem called Mosaic by Linda Pastin, who was a Jewish poet um, from Maryland in 20th century poet. I believe she's no longer alive. And the poem is split into four parts describing scenes on certain tiles for sale in a tile shop. So it's called Mosaic. The first section is called The Sacrifice, which is a depiction of the binding of Isaac. The second is called Near Sinai, which is about the revelation at Sinai and the giving of the Torah. The third is called The Flight into Egypt, which is about the beginning of the New Testament. And section four, and these are each little one paragraph sections, is called At the Armenian Tile Shop, which is where you zoom out and realize where you are. And I'll just read that fourth section. Under the bright glazes, Esau watches Jacob Cain watches Abel. With the same heavy eyes, the tile maker's Arab assistant watches me, all of us wondering why for every pair there is just one blessing. That's the closing of the poem. Mm. It's definitely worth a read, like a lot of Linda Pastown's poetry, um, but I was just thinking of it in the context of both the specific segment we were talking about in all three of the Jerusalem documentaries. I can't wait to read that poem. Okay, I have two... I would say lighter endorsements. The first one is my best friend, bless him, randomly sent me a YouTube link and was like, Tamar, I need you to listen to every word of it. And then I opened it and it was the Miami Boys Choir singing, We Need You. Do you know this song? Wait, wait. The the recesses of my brain. We need you. We need your tefila. Every single Jew, Each something the gala. Is this gula. right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Don't talk. Shh, shh. Just dab in. So yes. your tefila can reach Hashem. Anyways. First it's of all. It's about not talking in shul. Talking in shul. <laughs> <laughs> so first of all, it was an attack. And also, I am definitely talking in Jewel, literally, not just on this podcast. So, and second of all, it is so catchy. Like, it was in my head for weeks after this text message. I would be walking down the street, folding laundry, making dinner, 
working on my work and I wouldn't find myself suddenly saying, we need you, <laughs> we need your tefillah. <laughs> so listen, is it a blessing or a curse that I'm giving this to all of you who can say, but if this sounds like something that you might enjoy, we will put a link in the show notes. It has both delighted and horrified me. So there's that. Speaking of things that have delighted and horrified me, I am not on TikTok, but I am on Instagram. And Instagram has decided that I am a very from lady who wants to talk about going to the mikvah all the time. I get so many videos about going to the mikvah served to me and um i've got complicated feelings about it to be honest (laughs) some of them i'm like you know what i'm not that threatened by artificial intelligence anymore because whoever thought that i needed this video was extremely wrong and sometimes i'm like this is wonderful it's ridiculous but i love it so i guess my overall endorsement is for mikvah Instagram, <laughs> which frankly is a surprising combination of words. I did um, not know that. I'm not on Instagram and truly did not know that was a thing. Oh my God. It is. I, I wouldn't have guessed it was a thing, but it's a thing. In particular, the one that I most enjoy in a both like can't believe this is real and also like this is not bad this is actually good content is a woman whose handle is bohemian balabusta she has a head wrap that is the biggest head wrap i've ever (laughs) seen like honestly i want to know a lot about that head wrap situation (laughs) that might be my biggest piece of curiosity here but also she has like marital advice how to prep for going to the mikvah like how to get in touch with your own sexuality when you can't be with your partner like really it's good it's good content she's funny like she does the memes she's like she knows what she's doing so if that appeals to you bohemian balabusta we need you i don't know who i am anymore (laughs) that's what's been bringing me joy I appreciate you giving us something a little lighter than racial angst and ethnic (laughs) conflict, which is what we got from my endorsement. (laughs) I mean, I have a lot of those as well, but (laughs) but I felt like maybe we might want to. There's there's some other things to enjoy. Sahava, it has been a pleasure. It is so nice to get this time with you and to have that great chat with Marcy. Although, of course, we do really miss Mimi. Of course. Thank you so much for listening. um, And thanks to Daniel Zana for editing our show. If you have a minute, it would be great if you could leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think. If you have something that you would like us to discuss on a future episode, you can leave a comment on a post on our Facebook page, search for Jewish Public Media or on our website, jpmedia.co, and then choose Talking and Shul from the list of podcasts. You can also donate to Jewish Public Media at jpmedia.co which is a great way to support the show and make sure that we can keep bringing you these episodes every month. So have a 
This is great. I'm looking forward already to talking again next month. Thanks so much. Great to see you. Great to talk to you. Remember. (laughs) (laughs) We need every Uh, single Jew tomorrow. Yeah. Each and every Yid can bring the Gula. And on that note. (laughs) (laughs) See you next time.